Welcome to Radio. Welcome to the World Business Academy's Blog Talk monthly Blog Talk Radio show. It's going to be a little bit different tonight. Uh, we are no longer uh, Howard Smith, as you know, who's our co-host on all of these shows for the last two years. Uh, Howard is taking a well-deserved vacation, and since we uh, won't have Howard today, we've, we're going to change the format a little bit. Uh, last week, uh, last month, we did a very interesting thing when we had a, um, a guest on, Roger Epstein, and he was, as you recall, talking about the voyage of Aloha, the spiritual journey from separateness to connectedness. What we've decided to do on today's show is to bring another guest, uh, who you'll be hearing from in a few moments, Peter Ressler. And it's got Peter Ressler is an interesting um, author. Uh, you're going to want to stay live for this because Peter and his co-author Monica Mitchell. Uh, created a book called Conversations with Wall Street, the inside story of the financial Armageddon and how to prevent the next one. I'll be introducing Peter a little bit later in the show, but for now I wanted to start the show by making a couple of comments about things that are really in the news in a major way. First of all, I hope people realize that the situation in Greece is not critical from the sense that it will bring the euro or the European region down. Greece is much too small for that. The real issue going on in Greece is there is no government of Greece today, and it's clear that the European nations as a group will not be extending further capital to Greece unless it agrees to the austerity programs, which, led by the Germans, are being required of it from the IMF and the, and the World Bank. I, I'm really interested in having all of you pay attention to this for a very good reason. This could be the first time in our lifetimes where we've seen a sovereign state collapse from a political, um, basically a political uh, standoff, which leaves no one really in charge of the outcome. Now, why is that important to all of us? Well, when the, when the Greeks leave the euro, and thank God the Greeks have less guns than Americans, I think you're going to see a tremendous amount of civil dis disruption. Greece has long had about half of its economy in the underground category. So it's not like they actually have to be able to recreate an entire economy overnight because they've been doing all kinds of bartering and exchange. The problem is they don't have any way, as those euros start to run out, to pay to restock their factories for uh, the industrial materials they need. They won't have any way to pay for – there won't be ways for imported drugs to occur – doctors, dentists, I mean, virtually every sector of society. And when you consider that half the Greek population, employed population, works for the government, and the government will be strapped with no new currency to take the place of the euro overnight, it looks to me like a period of incredible bedlam is about to break out in Greece, much worse than what we've seen to date. I was just talking uh, a few moments ago with the vice chairman of the academy in Europe, uh, Jim Cusimano. We were exchanging notes on this whole, this whole crisis. And it is clear... And we should all be really paying attention now. Eight governments have fallen in Europe over the austerity measures. You're talking about the governments of Spain, Portugal, Italy, now France, Greece, uh, Ireland. All of these countries have fallen. And, and the government of Cameron in, in, in the UK, um, I can't imagine why it's still standing because Cameron unilaterally, as we've said on the show many times, put the government of the UK back into a second dipper section. Now, all of these people are, have been arguing for austerity, and they've all lost office. In the United States, you have an amazing 
situation, the House of Representatives yesterday proposed the, the Ryan budget, which is an austerity budget, full austerity, not one penny of tax increase in it, and uh, taking the taking the vast bulk of, of the money from uh, the essential safety net services in the country. So we're looking at a situation in the United States today where we're being asked to vote in the upcoming election to do austerity in America. And austerity doesn't work. Not only does it not work, the governments that embrace it ultimately get toppled if there's any inherent structural weakness, which there is at this time globally, but in the U.S. as well. Now back to Greece. So what happens when Greece gets blown out of the euro in another month or so? I think you're going to find that the um, the, the lack of border control, which is an inherent feature of the European community, could mean that you'll start to see landmass migrations of young people and anyone who thinks that they can flee to some other country in Europe to get a job. And this is already the brain drain has already started in Greece with young people, the best brains in Greece uh, from their college graduation classes have already started moving into the European countries. So you're going to see a breakdown and a chaos in a modern industrial state like we have not seen literally in our lifetimes. In fact, I was Jim and I were, 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 were scratching our head trying to think of when did this happen last in Europe? And it's been so long, it probably hasn't happened since the Weimar Republic, which of course gave rise to Adolf Hitler. A, 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 a terrible uh, thought in a lot of ways, and a scary thought. But if we don't stop and think about what we could create, we're going to be condemned to create it once again. And as the famous philosopher Santana said, those who do not read history are condemned to repeat it. So I, the cautionary tale at this point in our conversation with all of you listening is look at how austerity doesn't and can't work. Look at how it breeds political instability. Look how it has already led to riots in the streets in a number of countries, and particularly in Greece. And watch for the next 30 to 45 days of what happens in Greece and ask yourself, would you want anything even remotely like that to happen in the United States? If you don't, it is quite clear that this is not a time for austerity, or as Paul Krugman said in a couple of articles, May 7th and May 8th of this, uh, this year, it's time for us to look at how crazy the folks are that are arguing this, who have no concept, and I'm including Paul Ryan, of what the tragedy they would be imposing on this country would be like if they proceed with this insane budget. And I'm glad that Harry Reid said yesterday he wouldn't permit it. Now, I want to say one of the things that is the positive side of where we are. As you know, on this program, we successfully predicted that gas prices would fall a couple of months ago. Actually, about last month, I guess, when we did that one. And we said that the price of gas would start falling, and we even sent out Twitters to this effect. The... the uh, Interesting thing that happened here, which I want you to focus on, is that the price of gasoline at the pump fell before the price of oil fell per barrel in Texas West Intermediate Crude. In other words, before the price of oil started coming down, gas prices had already come down. Why? Because of the enormous surplus built up in the pipeline, because we're all driving a little bit less. So if you want to see those prices keep coming down, curtail your driving by 5% and watch another... 10 to 20 to 30 percent per gallon drop off the price of gas. 
And also notice that the petroleum industry put out a false story just two days ago saying that the reason the gasoline prices are coming down is because the price of a barrel of oil fell. And that is not true. What happened was gas fell first, and then the price of oil fell. And by the way, it'll keep falling because 30% of the speculators, 30% of the price of a barrel of oil, according to the American petroleum industry, is speculation. Speculators were betting that the oil industry would be able to keep a hammerlock on the U.S. economy. It hasn't happened, so now they realize that the price of oil has to fall to a level where people will start driving again as much as they did and restabilize there. That's not going to happen in the next week or two, so look forward to at least 8 to $0.10 cents further drop in the price of gasoline at the pump, and we think it could go lower. Now, that's some good news because that gives people more money in their pockets to purchase retail products. Another thing you should know that's good news in the U.S. economy right now, very good news. Uh, for the first time since probably 2007, the number of, of metropolitan areas in the United States where house prices are rising, there's 72 of them now, is exactly equal to the number of uh, metropolitan areas where house prices uh, have yet to fully stabilize. Um, as of a few months ago, that number was 27 metropolitan areas. So I know for a fact two months ago on this show, we predicted that the housing market was bottoming out, uh, and we are now confirming to you that that is correct. So the housing market's bottoming out. We're seeing dramatic um, decreases in the amount of housing stock available for sale, uh, which means that, uh, for example, um, in March of 2012, there are only 2.37 million houses available for sale as compared with uh, 3.83 million back in March of 2007. It went up to 3.41 million and kept up way above the 3 million level until just recently, March 2012. It was actually over 3 million as recently as 2011. So the number of foreclosures is starting to slow down quite a bit. Then that, that means the number of houses coming in the market has slowed down. And that means in, in 72 uh, independent markets right now in the U.S., in 72, prices for homes are going up, starting to firm and go up. So we can say with certainty now we were correct. The housing market did bottom in the last 60 days at the U.S., and it's now starting to rise. So if you're thinking of buying a house and taking advantage of these extraordinarily low interest rates, which you can get on a fixed 30-year, do not buy it on a variable, but on a fixed 30-year basis, it's entirely conceivable that this is the time for you to buy. The prices of a home are as low as they're going to get, particularly in the $500,000 and under category, and the interest rates are as low as they're going to be because they can't, they're, they're negative now. So it's a, it's a time to be uh, seriously considering buying a home if, in fact, buying a home is in your interest. I can make the argument for many people, depending on their tax situation, that renting is, is far superior even so, even still. So maybe another year before you buy a home. But do know that the bottom of the market is now it's here. We've hit it, and we're coming back up the other side. So the price of homes will rise. And as it starts to rise, uh, the cost of that home will start to go up. Um, that's a great thing in some ways for us. Many, many people are very happy about that. And it's another indication of continuing improvement. Also on the jobs front, I want to just touch on that for a minute. The, the information that we got just recently on the release of statistics about the employment in the, the last uh, month went up by, uh, as I recall, was 230,000, um, 222 to 230,000 net new jobs. Now, that's important because in that same report, it showed that the public sector continued to lay people off last month. So the actual number the private sector created was far in excess of 220,000, probably around 270,000 to 280,000. 
Now, to give you some idea how many jobs you need to create in order to keep even, in other words, so that the, the, the unemployment rate doesn't rise or fall, you probably need about 100,000 a month, maybe 125 at most. So when you see a 225,000 positive number, that's why the unemployment rate ticked down. Now, let me tell you another thing that you're going to hear that's false on the news. And this is very important you hear this. It is false at this time to say that the reason the unemployment rate is dropping is because people are discouraged and no longer seeking employment. That actually now we know for a fact is not the case. And by the way, I suspect that that wasn't true starting a month or two ago. Going into the recession of 2008, we saw, the people, we saw people dropping out in 2009 who were discouraged. By the way, we, in a program a number of months ago, we reported that a number of those were women who were returning to um, college or other higher education, junior college, or for master's degrees, so they could get better trained, so that when the economy started to pick up, they could re-enter the labor force. And that actually was a very smart thing to do. And as a result, uh, women in the last, as, as, a, as a group, as a gender, women have increased their average educational level over the last three years of this recession. Uh, and uh, we have seen um, them now start to re-enter the workforce. But here's something that you need to really watch. What are, who are these people who are dropping out of the labor force? Well, a very, very interesting study was just completed and released not more than a week ago that shows that those people are, as you would assume them to be, retirees. Why? Because if you're 60 years old or older and you've been out of work for a year or more, it's time for you to see that it may be that you're not going to get rehired. If you're 65 or older, you can claim your Social Security benefits and you can realize, okay, whatever I've got is what I've got. Now, you might pick up a part-time job here or there if you like, but you know that trying to obtain full-time employment when you're 65 is not going to be likely to happen. Now, you've got to look at the, ba the, the baby boom generation, this, this, this huge age wave that's passing through the economy now, and you're going to see more and more 65-year-olds dropping out of the workforce. That's not because they're discouraged. Sure, they'd like to have more money. It's because they've reached the end of their productive employment years. And having been unemployed for six to 12 months, they've decided, okay, there's really, why should I keep taking rejection? Why should I keep taking uh, doors being slammed in my face? Why not just let nature take its course and, and I'll go off into the sunset and try to enjoy my retirement years as best as possible? So that's really what's going on, and it's no longer people, quote, discouraged, close quote, and can't find work, although that continues to be a problem in uh, the people who are discouraged, particularly in the southeast part of the United States. Interesting study you should all know, because the southeastern part of the United States is the heart of the Democratic Party, I mean, the Republican Party, and in those states, in a recent study that was just compiled, those states have the least economic upward mobility, meaning, uh, and, and by the way, there's a coincident indicator, they have the lowest education rates. So if you have poor education in your state and you're in the southeastern part of the United States, you probably are going to have longer periods of unemployment. And it is my suspicion that you will have to begin to relocate, uh, if not because of the job market, because of um, climate change issues. Uh, again, the southeast being the, the principal target, uh, most of the damage for the uh, climate change uh, weather conditions is occurring down there. So what you're going to see is, like we did with Katrina, 300,000 people left New Orleans. They never came back. Uh, you're going to see, like we did before the Civil Rights Act was passed, huge numbers of black people left the South for Chicago, New York, and parts of Detroit, parts North, because they couldn't get a fair shake at unemployment, at employment down in the South. 
Well, now there's two forces that are going to continue to push people out of the South and Southeast. And those two, port, two, two, two factors, and I'm not including North Carolina in that, although I am including most of the rest, including South Carolina, including Kentucky, uh, probably Tennessee, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, uh, which already has a migration, um, Louisiana, Mississippi, and eventually it will even hit Texas, although not for a while because of the oil industry. Um, I would expect uh, probably Missouri as well. So all those states are going to start to see pressure on their populations to have to go to someplace else to work or live, just as 300,000 people had to leave Katrina and couldn't come back to New Orleans. The two factors going to cause that are, one, the pressure on the economy locally, because there's, there's so many people with less education there, which causes that area to have less upward economic mobility, and number two, the increasing damage from climate change. And to put a number on that, and then I'm going to turn to our guest, uh, just so you can recognize, the insurance industry of America has released a statistic that said that the damage sustained in 2011 was 11 times greater than the prior periods. That's from climate change. So as climate change ramps up, which will accelerate now and gets more severe, you'll see more dislocations, you'll see more things hit in the south and southeast, and you'll begin to see people start to readjust to it. And I'm looking for some migrations in the U.S. Hence, I come back now to my opening comment about Greece. I really do believe that Greece could experience outward migration um, in the European landmass, like we haven't seen for basically centuries. And that would come out of the collapse of the Greek state, not unlike the Weimar Republic sort of collapsed and gave rise to Hitler. I hope and pray that right-wing uh, fascist paramilitary forces don't take over in Greece, although that's a very good possibility, and you have the possibility of a civil war down there in Greece. So keep your fingers crossed for the Greeks. It's very, very tough times. And ask yourself, do we want to subject ourselves to the same insanity that Greece, Portugal, Spain, um, Ireland, Italy, France, all these countries have said no to? And my answer is unequivocally no. And if you'd like, please let the Academy know, and we'll send you a couple articles on Paul Krugman, or just Google Paul Krugman and see what he's been writing the last few months, and you'll see a very astute observation that is worth taking in. Okay, with that, if there are questions, and remember, the way we handle questions on the show, you can call in live, although most people pick up our show on an MP3 file. So if you want, you send in your questions to info at worldbusiness.org, and you will send them in ahead of time. I'll respond to them in this show. And that way, when you pick up your MP3 copy of this show, your question will have been answered, even if you couldn't listen in real time, because many people do have uh, that issue uh, where they have to adjust their time for listening to it. So uh, I think that's it for now. Because Howard's not with us today, um, I don't have um, any questions that he would have collected during the time. And I'm not sure if um, Madeline Austin, our Vice President of the Academy, I think is on this call. And Madeline, did you receive any questions that Howard passed along to you before we um, went on the air today? We have a few callers in the queue now. Um, but well, great. Uh, let's take let's take let's take a couple of those then before we go to Peter. Peter, hold okay. on if you've listened in. What have you got, Marilyn? I'll Madeline? take the. Uh, let's uh, recognize the person calling from 805. The number that begins 497. We'll unmute it now. Hello. Hello. Are you there? Well, that that person seems to have dropped off the line. Um, 
Some of these have been holding a while. Let's try 716434. We're going to unmute you now. Are you still there? No, they're not. Why don't we move on to Peter now? Okay. So uh, I started to introduce Peter, and, and if any of you are um, want to call back in, please do, and then hang on, and we'll get to you uh, at the next break. So I, I started to mention Peter Rentler and his co-author, Monica Mitchell. Peter's with us today. Peter uh, Rentler has been a CEO of a premier Wall Street executive search firm. He's worked for over 20 years with senior management of the top banks and hedge funds. His book, uh, Conversations with Wall Street, The Inside Story, The Financial Armageddon, How to Prevent the Next One, uh, is a a really great piece of work, I, and, I'm, and I say that with a considerable amount of pride because I believe they even carried endorsement of that book from me as founding CEO of the World Business Academy. Uh, today, Peter would like to discuss some of the problems with Wall Street led to the crisis and his hope for the future, including the template for what a social contract between Wall Street and the rest of society would look like if we're going to prevent a disaster like the last one or worse. Peter, are you on the line? I am, Ronaldo. Welcome, Peter. Thanks for joining us on the show. It is always good to be with you, and I I am looking forward to our conversation. Well, you know, where I'd like to start is uh, where you and I were talking recently, and I asked you a question. I'd love to have you give the answer on the air. I, if people have been following, particularly because Matt Taibbi wrote that incredible piece um, in Rolling Stone about Goldman Sachs and the historical influence they've had over the last 100 years on the American government, People have been wondering if if Goldman Sachs is really uh, a, a special type of pariah in the Wall Street community, or are they just one of the piranha that are swarming with all the other piranhas? So are they are they an exceptionally bad group of folks? And I think you once worked there, if I'm not mistaken. Or is there something more uh, systemic going on? Uh, I, Goldman was my largest account for many years, Ronaldo. Uh, I know a lot of people there. Uh, I knew the head of fixed income who was one of the greatest human beings I've ever known. Um, he was uh, instrumental in catapulting my career. He was one of the founders of the subprime mortgage market, along with a guy named Lou Ranieri. Uh, we do mention, uh, Monica and I mentioned him in our book, um, and so the answer is the, it's an industry-wide issue that we face. It's not just Goldman. Uh, the fact that Goldman has been um, sort of centralized in, in Matt's uh, view is simply because they're one of the most profitable firms on the street. They have a, a culture and a team ethic uh, that is, is really – a great culture and a great team ethic, and and they know how to make money. What's missing in Goldman's model, and what's missing in in the rest of the industry's model, is their connection to society. I, I guess the analogy I could give you, Ronaldo, would be um, I, if I'm a car maker, I'm supposed to make cars, and so I got to make as many cars as I can and try to sell as many cars as I can because that's how I make my living. That's how I earn my keep. On Wall Street, the mantra is, I make money. That's what I do. I manufacture money, so I have to make it, um, make as much as I can. The question that isn't asked, which which we one of the reasons we wrote the book is to start the dialogue around this question, is how. How is that money being made? And when the spotlight 
uh, fell upon Goldman and some of the things that they were involved in, people got outraged as they should have been uh, because there was that question that remained unanswered. doesn't matter how we do it as long as we do it and we'll push it to the very edge of the law. Uh, and that's well, some would say even over the law. I mean, there, there, there was illegal conduct, too. I mean, let's not – I mean, isn't that correct? Well, from the people that I spoke to, and, you know, you have to you have to sort of understand that the, the competitive level – our book focuses on the mortgage on the mortgage market, specifically on in Wall Street. So nobody knew what anybody else was doing, and nobody was paying attention to what was going on. There was no accountability. There was no transparency. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're seeing the lawsuits coming out now, and so that tells me that there was illegal. I think there was more illegal uh, issues taking place on the loan level. Uh, with the banks. Uh, well, I mean, I'm just thinking of a guy like, I mean, he hasn't been, I don't think he was convicted. He's certainly been, uh, Anthony Mozilla, as an example, countrywide. Um, you know, I mean, to, to say someone committed a crime is a, is, 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 is a, a pretty bad thing to say about anybody. But it would appear from the testimony he gave before Congress and the fines that he was assessed, which is a fraction, by the way, of the money he took. Anthony Mozilla, it appears to me, intentionally violated the law. Now, whether he goes to jail or not is another question. Do you agree or not? Do you think that what he did was over the line? Yes. Okay. So there was some law-breaking going. It wasn't just like they got greedy and pushed the line as far as they could. I think they crossed the line in a couple of cases, and I think robo-signing on foreclosures was probably illegal. That's why the settlement with those 19 or 21 attorneys general. I think there's other kinds of conduct that was illegal. I, I, I believe that people were literally signing documents that they had no idea, never read them, and were misrepresented to. And by the way, I don't, I don't take anybody off the hook who was buying houses for no money down, who couldn't afford them, and was flipping them and trying to take advantage of a broken system. Uh, I'm sorry about that because they really shouldn't have done that. But a lot of people weren't doing that who just got caught up in the in, in, in a raft of of crazy boom-like behavior. I mean, am I reading it wrong? And tell me if I am. I really would value. No, no, your I, you, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the number of people that went out and bought five or six or seven homes and said each one of them were their primary residence—they are the minority. Uh, the street, the banking community were aggressively pushing the envelope, and the reason they were was because, in the beginning of the securitization market back in the early '80s. Um, it, it, the product was a great product. I mean, it was a win-win for everyone. The homeowner was, was was a winner. The banks were winners. The street won. Um, investors were were t- taking down bigger returns than they could on treasuries, munis, corporates. Everybody was winning. And when that market started to become saturated, the banks and the street wanted to keep making money. I mean, there's a chapter in the book where it talks about how securitization was one of the easiest ways of making money on Wall Street. And so, you know, nobody wants to see that dry up or disappear. So the standards started to become lower and lower and lower until eventually there were no standards. What we what we missed on this was again accountability. I mean, the rating agencies were rating these securities as AAA uh, when a lot of them didn't even understand what what was inside the securities because the rating agencies were competing with each other. 
And if you won't give me the rating that I want, I'm going to take it to another rating agency. And so, wait, 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 just, you know, just we hold all on sort there. of got caught up. Yeah, Peter, just hold on because I want people to focus on that. I think, I think they've heard this actually reported, but they, the enormity of it hasn't really stu- sunk in yet. The The rating agencies basically were getting paid by the people creating the instruments to say they were good instruments when, in fact, they were chopped up pieces of garbage reassembled and slapped with an, a, a, a AAA rating. I mean, that's what happened. I mean, the rating agencies took a dive. Wouldn't you agree? For money. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if that's the question, and, and, and I and I and I, you know, I know you've got a you've got a chapter in your book which I think is great, called the net force of greed. Uh, I think the and you another one I like is called profits without purpose. I think both of those are like uh, they speak to the issue of when people are in this pell mell pursuit of wealth at any cost. Detached, and we're going to come in this, in this in a moment in our conversation to what you think the prescription for the future is. But when they when they have this pell mell dash for profits at any cost, everybody loses. Ultimately, even most of them lose. Right? Aren't there guys on the street that are out of work today that were getting pulling down six and seven digit salaries? Absolutely. Uh, there, there's as much pain on the street today, 2012 May as there was in the early parts of the crisis. Uh, If you weren't in the mortgage industry, if you were in the equities group or if you were in commodities or if you were in, you know, anything other than the mortgage industry. I mean, I remember um, uh, a block trader calling me and saying, you know, they're not paying me a bonus. They're paying me my salary this year. I didn't have anything to do with this. Uh, I I count on that bonus to pay my bills, to pay my mortgage, keep my kids in school. I don't know what I'm going to do. So, I mean, it's a pretty the mortgage industry, mortgage-backed securities group, uh, part of part of the Wall Street is is just one small aspect, but it shows you how connected we all are. And one of the reasons we wrote this book is to try to get people to understand how connect how what I do will affect you and does affect you, and how you know you talked before um, in your opening comments, which I thought were. Really, really interesting. I'd love to spend more time talking to you about this because I think you're a really smart guy. Um, this all started in the subprime mortgage markets, right? I mean, the, the conversation you're having about Greece and Spain and Italy and austerity began in 2008, well, a few years before 2008, on Wall Street in the mortgage markets. That's how connected we all are. And one of the reasons, another reason we wrote the book is is because – you know, we're so focused on the short-term results. We're so focused on quarterly earnings. You know, if we don't get our quarterly earnings or meet our quarterly earnings or beat them, you know, our competition is going to to, to take our business. Uh, we had a guy that said to me uh, that he knew. He knew the loans that he was securitizing were going to blow up. I said, well, why didn't you say anything? He said, because if I take my eye off the ball for a minute – I'm going to, somebody else is going to take my business and my boss will his boss basically said to him look if you don't want to do this there are like 10 guys that would love your seat and would be happy to give it to him so he had a real conscience about it and and you know he decided that rather than go to his wife and his kids and tell them life's about to change because I know what I'm doing isn't right, and it's and it's not going to last over the long term. So we're going to have to change our lifestyle now. He decided to put his head down, and that was a lot of guys in the industry 
will attest to the fact that until we become more transparent and until we have leadership inside the walls the big wall street firms that uh, that recognizes the importance of looking ahead you know more than just a quarter and not comparing everything they're doing to their six or seven or ten competitors you know we're, we're basically headed for another big collapse somewhere yeah and by the way just um we have a section of the show um peter that uh talks about financial literacy, where we talk about different words. And we've covered, actually, the word you just used, but I want to go back and, and, and focus on it for a moment because it's important for people to understand what this man's job was. You used the word securitization. What you were referring to is this guy's job was to take a package of basically subprime loans or le- less, than, uh, less than prime prime loans and wrap them with the security, which is a correct a new security that wraps around a bunch of old ones, and then take that new one, get it rated. So you start with dog paper in the first place. You wrap it with a brand new security. You go to the rating agency we just talked about, the the rating agencies that were getting paid to wrap this pile of garbage with toilet paper, frankly. And at that point, they call this new toilet paper AAA rated, even though what's inside the toilet paper is the same garbage they started with. That's, right. what, that's what securitization is. It's wrapping up a bunch of securities and then pushing them off into a secondary market as a new security, correct? Uh, it, well, yes and no. It's actually wrapping loans uh, well, the, and turning them into securities. So it's if, if your loan and my loan and Madeline's loan and all the members of the Academy's loan, if we're all making our monthly payments, those cash flows are what we're turning into a security. Right, we're but rap- the, pull, pulling them all together. Yeah, my, my reference to garbage was reference to loans. In other words, subprime loans with less than like less than high likelihood of payment, meaning they would Correct. go into default were being wrapped with a security, so that was the garbage was the subprime loans that you referred to earlier in your comments, being wrapped with a new security, and this new security was to take those loans and bring them into the secondary market and sell that security, that paper, based upon what was the assumed cash flow that would come out of loans which were bad loans to start with or questionable loans to start with. That's what happened. Correct. Right now, what my point is to you, and that's that's a good way for people to understand securitization. The guy who did the wrapping is the friend you talked about. And he knew what he was wrapping was stuff that wasn't good enough to carry the paper that was being wrapped around it. But he put his head down to quote you. And what that means, he took a dive. I'm not picking on your friend that don't know his name, don't need to know. But there's one thing I think people have to start to recognize, and then let's get to your suggestions for how we fix the system. As long as the system is broken, and it clearly is still broken today, and the way you know that is because the level of securitization is going on unabated, even though it's no longer with defective housing instruments, it's with other derivatives. But the, the, the issue is when the system is broken and you are being asked to do something which you know is wrong, it makes good sense to stop and pause and say, you know what, wrong is wrong, and even if it's going to make me rich, will that work? Will that last? Will I be happy? Or have I just done the trade-off? The very famous story of Jesus in the desert where the devil says to him, look, I'll turn these stones into bread you haven't eaten for 30, 40 days, and you're going to be, you're going to eat. All you've got to do is just go along with what I'm telling you. And theoretically, the story of the Bible was that Christ said, nope, get thee behind me, Satan. There's almost like there's got to be a voice in the back of our ears, whether we're Muslims, Jews, Christians, or just agnostics, or whatever we are, 
there should be a voice somewhere called conscience in the back of our head that says, I can't wrap a new security around garbage and call it good. Get thee behind me, Satan. I'm just not going to participate in this system. And it'll do what it does. Better that than being engaged in activity, which will not only hurt me ultimately, but my family as well. And the illusion that it won't hurt you, the person doing it, actually is an illusion that is shared by another animal in the human in the in the, in the non-human kingdom called the ostrich. So sticking your head in the sand, which you used an interesting analogy, he, he put his head down, just like an ostrich does, but his tail feathers were sitting in the air, and I assume that guy's unemployed today. He actually is employed today. Um, is he employed? Right no, though he is employed, he's, he's stayed employed. <laughs> Good for um, him. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> but here, here's the thing. Uh, if you read Chapter 11, it's it's all about the guys that you were just talking about. There are lots of guys in the industry that stood up and said, no, I will not do this. Unfortunately, there are less of those guys than there are the guys that said, you know what, um, whatever the risks are. I mean, part of the problem with the model is the model is based on blowing itself up. In the chapter Armageddon, you know, it, it talks about the big boy model. We're all big boys. We're all big investors. We're all supposed to be sophisticated. And whoever is left holding the garbage is the one that's going to go down. Um, and we just got to make sure that we're not the ones holding the garbage. The... Um, it, but, you know, and Anthony Mozilla, about, which is the comment, the name I brought up earlier, just so people know what we're talking about, was the CEO of Countrywide, who basically made over $400 million um, designing the system of corruption, which then your friend ended up being a participant in. But certainly Anthony Mozilla was one of the leading characters uh, in this whole parade of, the charade actually, of, 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 of um, faulty, intentionally faulty paper being sent out into the world, and the theory, and I think you just said it's like a kid's game of musical chairs. When the music stops, there's one less chair. You don't want to be the guy who hasn't got the chair. And they assume there will be no chair, and that's what you call the blow-up, right? Yeah, that's that's the process of Armageddon, and that's that's the way that part of the industry is is still operating. Here's the thing, though. You know, we're talking about a lot of gray area here. It's not black and white. There are lots of guys that I know, and again, a lot of them are detailed in Chapter 11 that said, no, I will not do this. I'm out. And then there are a lot of guys that said, you know what, I can't. You know, it's a very, very personal issue, right? I mean, when you think about somebody that spent 20 years of their career developing it, carefully going to the right schools and, you know, the whole pedigree thing and, you know, it, and, and then you're faced with sort of walking away from all of it. Um, you know, that comes down to a very personal decision uh, that will impact your family and the rest of your life. So it's it's easier said than done. Um, it is, but you I know what? And, and, I, and I loved your Chapter is, 11 with the, the heroes. Uh, Peter, i got to just interject. I love Chapter 11 and the heroes. But at the end of the day, it, it, no one said doing the right thing would be easy. Yes, it's easier said than done, but it has to get done. I think if people, most of the people listening to this show would say personal responsibility is the place you start because this system does depend on a lot of people cooperating. And I know that you're not one of them, and I know that you're one of the good guys. And, and in fact, at the end of this uh, conversation, if you, uh, feel free to read my endorsement of your book over the air because, as you know, I, I wrote a very glowing endorsement of your book. So I'm glad that you're out there telling the story. But I also think we've got to be a little tougher with asking people to do the right thing, even though it does get expensive sometimes. It's still the right thing. 
Well, one of the things we need to do is we need to get senior management to do the right thing because people, there are leaders and there are followers, okay? And the majority of those in the industry, and not just Wall Street, but any industry, are followers. And who are they following? They're following their leaders. And so what we need to do is, and this is in the social contract, the last chapter, uh, we need to get our leaders to understand exactly what you just said. And we need to get the members of the C-suite that report to those leaders to buy into that. Um, and so uh, okay, it's it, about it, leadership. It, it, yeah, Peter, let me just interject. So in the Academy's mission, which we adopted, our tripartite mission in 1987, the, the first, actually 86, the first of the three parts of the mission is to change the consciousness of existing business leadership from that of a predator to that of a steward because you make different decisions if you think that you actually have some responsibility to society. And that's what you're saying. The C-suite, standing for people who have a CFO, CEO, CTO, CIO, those people who have the C in their, in their title are the C-suite and above. They need to be – that is the current business leadership, and they need to be willing to adopt to this new um, – this, this higher way of looking, this more moral and, frankly, more economically effective way of looking at the world. So segue, go ahead, Peter. What other, system, what other things have to happen in your, in your formulation of the solution – C-suite people have to change. The, the guys at the top of the financial mechanism, at, at the heads of people like Goldman and Morgan, they have to change. What else needs to change? Well, we need to establish a level of transparency in the way we do business. Uh, one, of, one of the most important aspects across the industry, with the exception of maybe one or two firms, is that the chief executive officers of these, of these firms did not really understand their two most profitable divisions. They didn't understand them. They were separated and removed from them. All they knew about the mortgage business, the uh, residential mortgage, RMBS business, and the commercial mortgage backed securities business, CMBS business, is that they were their most profitable divisions. And so what they their mandate was keep making money, keep making money. But if you sat them down and you asked them what the risks were, they couldn't really tell you. So one of the one of the the points that we bring out in the social contract is um, a firm needs to agree to have their senior executives understand exactly how their two most profitable divisions operate um, and what the risks are. And, you know, there's also, you know, the need for uh, the government to, you know, lay some rules down. And, uh, and we need to start to look at the systemic connection from, a, uh, you know, from any product line. Who, who are the people and the organizations that are impacted by a transaction that is done by a firm? In this case, obviously, it's the homeowner. I spoke with so many mortgage traders that said to me, I was not thinking about the homeowner. One guy was trading second lien mortgages at one of the bigger shops, and I said, well, explain to me in your view what a second lien mortgage is. Let's make believe we're not on Wall Street. Let's take our Wall Street hats off. And he started talking about collateral and tranches, tranche, tranche this, and, and very technical. And I said, look, at the end of the day, is that security that you're trading comprised of 9,000 loans? Yes. And are those loans directly tied to individuals, to families, to individual homeowners? He said, yes. I said, did you ever think about that? And the answer was no. 
the but, 9, and it was a pause. It was a pause. I said, so, so that that little that security that's blinking up and down on your screen is actually people's lives. You're actually trading people's lives, and uh, you know, post September 15th, 2008, um, people were very open to uh, and and sort of shocked to uh, to have that realization be be uh, be revealed to them. Yeah, it, I want to. I want to. We're going to bring this part of the interview to an end, but I, I think that's a great place to stop because what you're saying is is so true. It resonates with anybody who has even remotely an open heart and an open mind. At the end of the day, these financial manipulations are about people, real people with real homes, real children, real real obligations, real places in society, and they got caught up in a disaster of enormous consequences if you look at what happened between 2008 and 2011. And that it's real people is, is a critical thing. Before you go, Peter, though, um, Madeline, if you're still on, uh, are any of the questions in the queue uh, ones for people like uh, Peter is that he could answer it while he's still on the air? Um, we don't know what the subject of the questions are, but we do have several callers, a number well, of them well, in the queue. Okay, Peter, if you don't mind sticking around for a second, we'd like to find out. Uh, and I, I don't want to just make one last comment before uh, we go to the questions, and that's Peter's um, website. Uh, I really uh, want to urge you all to go there. You'll learn more about his book. You'll learn more about what Peter does and Monica, his associate. Um, so go to www.wallstreetconversations.com. Again, www.wallstreetconversations.com. And that's where you'll find Peter Ressler, R-E-S-S-L-E-R, and Monica Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L, and what they do, which is to try and bring a level of, I think, insight uh, and integrity to Wall Street, which we would all think could use a healthy dose of both, insight and integrity. Okay, Madeline, turn on the first caller, if you could, please. Okay. We're going to open the line to area code 570-676. Are you there? Uh, yes, I am. This is Christine. Hi, Christine. Go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Christine. Glad to have you. Hi, thank you so much. Um, this is wonderful. I'm very grateful, and uh, I did already bookmark uh, Wall Street Conversations in my Amazon.com wish list, so I'm ready. <laughs> um, the um, the question I, I thought maybe uh, might be helpful because it has to do with mortgages is um, we're, we're sitting in our primary residence in a 30-year uh, VA loan at four and a half percent, and I'm watching the interest rates and. With the the EARL that was passed, the interest rate reduction refinancing loan that the government passed, um, we yes. were thinking about refinancing, was our question, that we could go down 1%. But part of the reason we're thinking of doing it is because uh, there's an option with this for the VAs where you can you know, rent your house, where before you couldn't with a VA loan. It had to be your primary residence. And there's other you know life issues why we're thinking of you know, renting our house so we can build the dream house that we want. And I was just wondering if you, you could provide any comments on that. Okay. I'm going to break that into two questions, and then I'm going to turn it over to Peter, And if you want, Peter. first question really has to do with it doesn't make sense to refinance if you can uh, to get a point off your interest. Uh, and number two, the second question is, uh, are there certain advantages one can use under the new VA rules relative to home mortgages, which no longer need to be for primary residence, but can be for a secondary residence, which could be rented, and therefore you could use the cash for something else. Peter, do you want to comment on either of those? Uh, go ahead, Ronaldo. I'll, I'll follow up on what you have to say. Well, I think of the first one, 
Uh, I, yeah, I would recommend it. In other words, if you have a clean shot at refinancing and you're going from a 30-year VA fixed to a 30-year fixed, and that implies, by the way, that the equity in your home is high enough and or that you have a qualified for a program that they have right now where um, the value of your equity has dropped, but your but your earning capacity is good. And it sounds to me like, Christy, you've, you've investigated the program, so you know those ins and outs. You, you, you've looked at them, right? Yes. Plus, also in the program, not that it's an issue for us, but they're requiring no credit check and no appraisal, which we would be fine with, but it's, it makes it even more inviting. Yeah, and, and, and by the way, are you, are you doing that through an a, a independent broker, or are you doing that directly with the VA? I have been doing it with um, the actual mortgage companies themselves. Like we went from the one where we bought the house, and then we went with Wells Fargo, and now we're looking around. We have an option with USAA because, again, we're, we're veterans. Um, any okay. feedback on that would be great. <laughs> okay, well, no, no, that, no, I understand. That, that's good. Okay, so the only caution I would give you is make sure that you've got uh, there's no there's no um, fine print so to speak mm-hmm. uh, on the on the new mortgage so that it, you're going from a 30 year fixed to a 30 year fixed and the reason is even if you go to uh, some of these mortgages can contain and that's why I asked about the independent brokers but it sounds like you're dealing with uh, reputable first source suppliers uh, the, the, some of the fine print sometimes can say it's a 30 year a 30 year amortization 10 year fixed uh, is a common is a common piece of fine print you should look for, and that's not as good because with the all the money the U.S. has been printing and with the instability in the in the international community as well as in the U.S., it is entirely conceivable that you could have inflation more likely than deflation in the future. I mean, it, it can go either way. You just don't want to be caught uh, at four percent, and you're going to drop a point. Further deflation is not a risk to you. You're you're in great shape already, so I would take the point if it's totally safe, and uh, don't 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 cut your uh, bridge to the other side of the cliff until you for sure have landed on the new side. With regard, so so by all means, I think it sounds like you're very wise and you've done your homework and keep reading the fine print and and proceed forward. Uh, Peter, you want to add anything to that before I go to the second question? Yeah, I want to go to the fine print. That's that's really the 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 fine print is what took down the system. And a lot of people didn't read the fine print. Uh, so my my suggestion would be have your lawyer go through it, you go through it, have uh, a, a completely objective third party go through it. And I would also do a lot of due diligence on the issue of the loan. Um, check them out. You know, it, if you can save a point, you can save money. And I would be curious as to why they would not want a credit check. I would also be curious as to why they would uh, not want to do an appraisal. That That is a yellow light for me. And um, so if it were my – if I were thinking about doing this deal, I'd want to know the reasons for that in writing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, by the way, you, that, that's why I asked the question, Christy, about whether you're using an intermediary mortgage broker. Right. You said no, you were talking to Wells Fargo and USAA. And the USAA, right. for those people who don't know, is a Veterans Benefit Association. Uh, those two are going to be um, reputable. If I, if you had said you were dealing with an intermediate mortgage broker, I would have said be careful uh, because of the two yellow lights that uh, clearly Peter has focused on, which I agree with. And when I say read the fine print, I, I think what he said was he said it actually better. He said, have somebody in addition to yourself, like an attorney, 
actually read that fine print to make sure you're going to really land what I call on the other side of the cliff before you cut yeah. your, your your bridge to the back of the cliff you're on. Go ahead. If I, if I could just interject, this what's interesting about this, no credit check, no appraisal, the website I'm on right now is the United States Department of Veterans Affairs, and this is where they write up what the IRRRL is, the Interest Rate Reduction Refinancing Loan, which is part of the government, and it's because of that where there's no credit check and no appraisal. It doesn't have to do with the banks. It has to do with some kind of government VA backing. If because again, I'm on the Department of Veterans Affairs website. Yeah, no, I no, I understand. And, and by the way, I want I want to just tie something else for people together. Um, for people who didn't notice, the VA, I mean FHA, for the first time this uh, this uh, month, I believe, it achieved profitability again since the crash. The FAHA, in fact, it's the first quarter this year even, because uh, last year they were $6.5 billion in the hole. This year they made about over $2.5 billion. So, so they're starting to make money because the number of foreclosures are going down, and part of it is these programs that you're referring to. But I thought, um, I, I didn't realize they were, now for veterans they're probably doing it. If, if, if someone listening to this is not a veteran, they may have a more difficult time applying for and obtaining those funds. But under the case that you gave, which said both you and your husband are veterans, and, you're, um, and you've gone to the website, and you're going to be sure to read the fine print or have some lawyer do it for you when you're done, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. By all means. How, how much equity do you have in the house, by the way? Is it negative or is it positive? We're a little bit positive. We're a it's little bit barely. positive. Yeah, we bought a house that, um, believe it or not, it had six bedrooms, but the, the the last two bedrooms were not heated. So we put heat in, and so we for, for an eight hundred dollar investment, we increased our equity by twenty thousand. <laughs> okay. So that just pushed us a little bit over the edge, and um, we're we're just a we're just a little bit over what we owe. And that would be my if I, my other question is, how do we determine then with the closing costs that will get rolled in? Because we have an option of rolling in closing costs, which will then bring our mortgage you know, balance up again, how do we determine when that becomes illogical, you know, because we're going to, we might be doing like two points and then a little bit of closing costs. Yeah, it's very simple. First of all, you're required to get a pre-closing statement and you can't be bound until you until you get mm-hmm. that. And in that pre-closing statement, it'll give you your new, uh, it'll give you your average uh, interest rate, it'll be stated in APR, you'll also be given the total dollars per month. So now let's use this question to segue to the second part of your question. You, you, you're basically trying. And did you say it was a six-bedroom house? Yes, it is. Boy, oh boy, it's a big one. Okay, <laughs> where, where, whereabouts in the country do you live? What, what area? In the, po- in the Poconos. In the Poconos. In okay. The Poconos. So, so in, in you, when you first started. Mm-hmm. Pardon me. When we bought the house in 2007, we knew that the market was going down thanks to like listening to you. And we could not find anything, and everything was overpriced. And we found this ranch house on three acres with a finished basement. And we looked at each other, and we said, look it. They finished the attic, but they didn't put heat in, so it won't appraise for that. So we're not going to pay for it. So maybe if we buy it for the cost of a three-bedroom house, and we finish it, and it becomes a you know a six-bedroom house, that that and that's what happened is we just put a little bit into it and it pushed us over and gave us very a lot smart, of very very smart, and I'm glad to hear it's it, it's working out well for a couple of veterans. Uh, so here's here's what I was about to say. When you said six bedrooms, it, it it triggered for me what you said at the very beginning of this call, and when you talked about renting. So here's what you need to know about that. Okay, you want to look on the. I want you to make this decision based on cash flow first, after tax second. Okay. So when you look at it as a cash flow issue, you take the monthly number, which you'll get in that pre-closing statement, 
and you'll see when the points are rolled in and the total thing is financed, they'll show you what your actual monthly mortgage cost is. Mm-hmm. That dollar amount is what you want to focus on, okay? All right. Okay. Don't don't get caught up in number in percentages. Just look at that dollar amount because that dollar amount is going to tell you the cost to carry that home. And because you're not going to have an appraisal, your tax basis will not go up. So it's really an apples to apples comparison. If that number is favorable, then I would say doing it. If it's if it's neutral to negative, don't. Now I'll go back to your next question, which is can you then take advantage of the provision that allows you mm-hmm. to do this on a second home as opposed to a primary residence? I wasn't aware they were doing it for second homes. That's new to me, so mm-hmm. you brought you, thank you for teaching me something today. And I would say if that's clearly permissible, with a mm-hmm. six-bedroom home, you know your your market there, it sounds to me like you have a multi-unit dwelling project. You're yeah. about to become an apartment owner. It is. It is. We could do four bedrooms on the top two floors, and then and then a, like an, an in-law suite on. It's, there's three floors. There's a finished basement, and they're all walk out and everything. And and I've known it from the beginning that we could do that. We could do two separate rentals. Yeah, so it sounds. Made, you're very so creative. An HOA manager. So he said. He's a what manager? He's a, he's a homeowners association manager for a 1700 property. Yeah. You know development so he said he wants to do the property management i make sure they pay he uses his maintenance guy to be to do the repairs because we really want to build the home of our dreams this is not near the home of our dreams and uh but yeah it's right there on the va website it says that this loan the occupancy requirement is different when you originally got your va loan you certified that you occupied or intended to occupy your home for this you need to only certify that you previously occupied it I mean, that little flag really caught me. I was like, whoa, we can actually rent our VA home. <laughs> yeah, I think that, again, watch the fine print on that one but um, and make sure nothing comes out to, to, to sneak up on you just before closing. But but if you can achieve what you've said, and I'm going to assume you can because you seem to be very bright and articulate, it sounds like you've figured out a way to make some money on the home you own. And I think that's really great because you're doing it without going into Wall Street. You're not you're not playing in the forgive me, Peter, but I call it the casino of Wall Street. You're not playing in that casino. You're you're actually going to take money and make it by doing something you think you're capable of doing, i.e., renting out, finding your tenants, managing. Because you mentioned, and I was about to get into it, when you manage a property, you have repairs, you have maintenance, you have who's going to be in charge. It sounds like your husband's got that skill. So for you guys, it sounds like a great investment, a great idea, and congratulations for pointing it out and sharing it with our listeners. Peter, do you have anything else you want to add before we take the next call? Um, I like the Poconos, so send me your address, and maybe we'll come (laughs) out and and, uh, spend some time together, because I have a tremendous amount of respect for uh, for veterans as well. Okay. Do I get a hold of you through your website? Yeah, you should. Are you, joke, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. Well, I mean, if you're seriously thinking about inviting me, then no, I'm not joking. But uh, uh, I, I wish you the best of luck. Oh, thank you. And and Ronaldo, can I ask another question about the Rural Business Academy quickly? Sure. We have like, um, and I apologize if I'm ignorant about this, but do we have like a um, um, a, a way that uh, Rural Business Academy members can like dialogue with each other. Do we have some kind of a you know you know thing like maybe once a week conference call or something where people can just because I would love to talk with other Rural Business Academy members after these monthly calls because my my mind is spinning with information. Yeah, I want to- 
I want to thank you for that because we've actually talked about it, uh, and, and, and what I'd love to do is probably stimulate the formation of local discussion groups, but really in a, in a distributed way, meaning rather than hierarchically try to control them, um, it would be great if we could get those conversations going. So I'll tell you what, there's a, there's a saying we have, in the, and, and that is, in the time-honored tradition of the academy, we accept. Meaning, if you would send an email to info at worldbusiness.org, uh, what we'll do is we'll start to, to dialogue with you about how we could create this and how you might help it happen for people like yourself and others. Thank you so much. I would love to do that. Absolutely. We'd love to hear from you. So please do drop us a line. Okay, right. Madeline, I know we're almost out of time, but if we have other calls in the queue, I hate to, queue, I hate to, hate to hang up on them. Do you want to take one more? Well, we do have um, several callers in line. Um, we're we're out of time now. If, um, oh, Let's take one more because I think we, they'll give us a little grace period. Let's just take one more if we could. And the rest of you, please send us the email with the questions, and we'll answer them at the very worst on air next month. If there's urgency to your question, we'll try and answer it between now and next. We'll answer it sooner. So Actually, please. the calls have dropped off. Uh, people must just just now, Ronaldo, at the top of the hour. Okay, that's so. So let's. Um, we were going to do a lightning round. I guess we've had a great conversation with Peter, so we're not going to be able to do that. Um, but I think I've already discussed with you that oil's coming down. I've mentioned that housing prices are going up. Uh, for any specific lightning round questions, which I would have handled, uh, we didn't have a chance to talk about commodities this month and a few other things. Please send us in those emails, and we will get back to you. If it's urgent, we'll get back to you right away. If not, we will cover it in next month's show. So when you go to pick up your MP3 file, it'll, your, the answer to your question will be there. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being our guest. And if you, um, if you want to run that endorsement of your book on, our, on your website that we wrote for you, please feel free. Uh, we're very proud of the work you did. And I know you've been a fan of the academies for many years. And really, give my best to Monica and all the best to you. Will do. And thanks for having me on. It was a pleasure. Thanks for being on the show, Peter. And thank you one and all for listening. That wraps up our show for this month. And uh, we'll be uh, – Madeline, do we, uh, we're, we're in the regular time next month with Howard back, aren't we? That's right. Second Thursday of the month at Second 11 a.m. Pacific time. All right. So please, uh, please be sure to um, come back and, and tell your friends because the more listeners we have – the more fun we can have with this show. And we'll have some very interesting guests coming up that we'll be announcing in the um, in the next mailing that you'll get about the show. Uh, keep tuned. We have a very interesting couple of people coming up in the future as guests. Thank you again to Peter. Thank you for all listening. Thanks, Madeline. And thank you for the team that made it possible. Have a great day. <laughs>